Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Monday, April the 4th, 2022. It is currently 426 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in. Just a quick reminder, just a quick reminder, if you would like to be able to listen to us when we're live on the air, if you would like to be able to find all of our content broken down into the different series, we have the series Eye on Christianity, where we put our, I turn my eye to what is going on in the world of Christianity, news commentary, where we give hopefully some kind of a theological perspective on what's happening in the news, our series on the book of Romans, which is now going on, I don't know how many years we've been in the book of Romans, uh, we've started a new series in the book of Jude. All the different series, if you want to find all of our content broken down into different series, be able to listen to us live and receive notifications when I send out uh, any kind of message or if I just send out a quote of the day, whatever. If you want to be able to get all of our content, simple, easy, and one app, download the Church One app. That's Church, O-N-E, Church O-N-E, you can get it for Android or Apple device, Church O-N-E. Once you download the app, simply search for Theology Central, make us your, 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 your broadcast of choice. Choose us, Theology Central. As soon as you choose us, boom, the app becomes our app. Basically, as soon as soon as you choose us as our your broadcaster of choice, immediately what happens is we, it becomes the Theology Central app. It goes from the Church One app to the Theology Central app. And it, what it does, it just pulls in all of our content. It's all nice and neat, and it works really well. Uh, most people have. Uh, they like the notification system on it. A lot of people still listen to our live broadcast via the Spreaker app, which is is also an option. But uh, we're, we're pointing people to the Church One app. If you want uh, information about the Spreaker app or the Church One app, email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and I'll be more than happy to fill you in and to give you all the information that you may need. Now, what are we here to do today? We're not here to talk about an app. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about a very important situation, a very important d- subject, and have a very important conversation about that subject. All right, here we go. We are here to talk about what is required for salvation. What must you do in order to be saved? Now, you would think after 2,000 years of church history, we would have figured out the answer to this question. You would think, but within the body of Christ, there is massive amounts of disagreement. Now, you may say, well, yes, there's a disagreement between Catholicism and maybe uh, Greek Orthodoxy with, say, the Protestant world. Well, if you think there's agreement on this question, even in the Protestant world, you would be sadly mistaken, because even within the Protestant world, we can't seem to figure out what exactly must a person do in order to be saved, because many Protestants will say something like this. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And everybody says, amen. And then almost immediately they will say, but, but, which basically negates anything that just came before, but the grace that saves, yes, you're saved by grace alone, but it doesn't remain alone. If you are saved, you will do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do these things, then it proves you were never saved. So you're saved by grace alone. However, if you don't do these things, then you are not saved. 
And you will see this a lot on social media. Someone saying, you know, you know, I just, I look around and I just see a lot of people who profess Christianity, but I don't think they possess, possess Christ as if they somehow, they just know. And it's what they look to. They don't look to the person's profession of faith. They don't look to the, per, the fact that the person is trusting in Christ. No, 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 no. They ignore all of that. And they say, well, look at what they do. Look, look, they think this way. They believe this way. That, nope, can't be saved, can't be saved, can't be saved, can't be saved, can't be saved. So they are judging people's salvation, not based off a, an imputed righteousness. They are judging people's salvation based off a practical righteousness. And I don't know how we can judge whether someone has has received the imputed righteousness of Christ or the imputed righteousness of Christ has been accredited to them by looking at what they do or don't do. But that's what it turns into, which then ultimately basically becomes what? Even though we don't want to say it, it becomes a salvation by works. You say, well, no, you're not saved by works. Yeah, but if I don't have the works, I'm not saved. And you can't tell me exactly how many works I have to have. You'll say, well, it's not that you're going to be perfect. And then it just becomes some like, so what exactly do I have to do to be saved again? Could you, could you really articulate this? You have to believe in Jesus. Okay, now what? Well, if you believe in Jesus, then you're going to do this, 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 and this. But what if I don't do those things perfectly? Well, I mean, you don't have to do them perfectly, but there has to be. And, and it just goes on and on, and it becomes this very subjective thing, and it just becomes chaotic. So we're asking the question, what must you do to be saved? And what we're doing is we're listening to an episode of the Theocast podcast. Theocast podcast. And I would highly recommend you subscribe to the Theocast podcast. Whether you agree with everything or disagree with everything, I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with everything. I'm just saying that it's a podcast you should you should listen to. There's so many out there, and I'm always trying to point you to podcasts that I think will be beneficial or helpful, even if it may be things that we may disagree with. Sometimes just the, the quality of the conversation and discussion can be worth it. But I would point you to Theocast. Please subscribe to it. And they recently did an episode called What Must You Do to Be Saved? And we reviewed about 15 minutes of it in part one. We reviewed about 15 minutes of this episode. And in this episode, they pointed us to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we read these words. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, immediately, as Theocast pointed out so well, the, as soon as you start reading that, you know that this is a passage that fits into the law category. Please note this very important theological distinction. Law and gospel. Law is what is, any law passage is a, is a do passage. What must I do? Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Law passages tell you what you must do. Gospel passages tell you what has been done. If it's a law passage, it will say, do this. If it's a gospel passage, it will tell you what has been done. A gospel passage is the good news of what has been done for you. Law is what you do. Gospel is what's been done for you. This is a very important theological distinction. And many times preachers will take a law passage, because this is a law passage in Luke 10, and we will preach this 
and not in order to point people to the gospel, which is what has been done for you, but we will preach the law passage as go do this, go do this, go do this. And sometimes we'll preach law like this, go do this. And if you don't do this, it proves you were never saved. Well, wait a minute. The law passage is not preached to, sh- to tell me if I was never saved. The law passage is to show me that I need salvation because I can't do the law passage. I can never do it perfectly. I can never live up to it. So this law passage in Luke 10, so this question is asked, so uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, so then uh, Jesus says, what is written in the law? Please note, it's a law passage. What is written in the law? And he says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all my mind, and, and thy neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, thou hast answered right, do and thou shalt live. So, okay, you want to talk about what to do to inherit eternal life from a law perspective, then that's right. Go do the law. Go do the law, and you will have eternal life. Go do the law, and you will have eternal life. Now, immediately, guess what? You you can go try that, but you will find out at some point you're going to come back to Jesus and go, I tried, and I didn't do it. Anyone who's honest is going to say, I couldn't do it. Because nobody will love God that way. No one will love their neighbor that way because of our sinful nature. So the law passage is to make you go, I can't. I need Jesus. I need someone who did love God correctly and love the neighbor himself. And the only person who ever did it correctly was Jesus Christ. True God, true man. It's in him. By faith, his passive and active obedience is imputed to my account. This is the way it works. This is, this is the whole point of the Protestant Reformation. But again, what, what we, we, we like, we'll say, we'll take that law, love the Lord thy God with a heart, mind, body, and soul. And this is how many preachers, Protestant preachers will preach it. You do this. And if you don't do it, it proves you were never saved. No, it's to demonstrate that I can't do it. That's why I need Christ who did do it for me. In Christ, I do. I have loved God with all my heart body, soul, and mind. And I've loved my neighbor as myself in Christ. So in a sense, we are saved by our works. It's the works that Christ imputes to our account. That's why we can be judged according to works, according to Romans chapter 2. And why can't I be judged according to works? Because God will see the works of Christ that's been imputed to me. All right. Now, and, and then if you want to talk about a judgment of works, that's not a judgment that would describe, that would have anything to do with salvation. That would be a judgment dealing with reward if you believe in a, now we can get a whole discussion about some people believe in one judgment. Some people believe in multiple judgments. I'm not here to get into all of that. The point is salvation is based off what Christ has done for me. So Jesus is like, okay, there, go do it, go do it and you'll live, go do it and you'll have eternal life. But almost immediately, <laughs> the person the, the person asking the question is like look at verse 29 but but willing to justify himself said unto his, unto Jesus and who is my neighbor now there's lots of different ways of interpreting this some people interpret that as the lawyer is like okay tell me who my neighbor is and I'm going to go do this so that I can be justified the only problem is I don't believe that's an accurate understanding of the passage and here's why the lawyer asked the question in the beginning of verse 25 to tempt Jesus. To tempt 
Jesus. So clearly he's not like, tell me who my neighbor is so I can go do it because I want to be justified. He's asking the whole question, trying to trip Jesus up. I think what he's doing is like, oh, oh, so if I go do this, I can have eternal life. Well, then who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Because he's trying to justify himself, by meaning that you tell, in other words, tell me who my neighbor is, because if I can limit the, the number of people who are my neighbor, then I can say, see, I've done this. And once I say that I've done this, then you would have to say that I have eternal life. He, he's doing this to try to prove a point. What he wants Jesus to do is limit the number of people who is his neighbor, because the more people, the, the more limited the, the answer would be, the greater chance the lawyer can say, I'm justified. Therefore, I have eternal life. Therefore, nobody needs you. Right? It, th- this is a, this is an argument against Jesus. Ultimately, is what's happening here. So we and, and Theocast they looked at this entire passage. What we're going to do is we're going to start their discussion as they summarize everything we've learned about this passage. It's a law based passage that's supposed to show you your inability to do this and why you need Jesus. All right. Now, they're going to summarize it, and they've got two other passages they're going to look at about what must I do to be saved, and let's see where they go. Are you ready? Let's jump in. All right, hopefully that was a good review. 13 minutes review. I already spent way too much time, so I can't do any more review. Go back and listen to part one. Here we go. Here's what it looks like. And anybody that has an ounce of self-awareness that reads that parable or is listening to it should conclude, man, I, I have never... I've never done that the way that I should do that. I have never done that well enough to merit righteousness in the sight of God. Mm-hmm. So let's let's summarize the whole passage. The man walks up. What must I do to be saved, to inherit eternal life? What does yeah. the law say? Jesus says. The man says, "Love God and neighbor perfectly." And Jesus yep. says, "Go do go go and do likewise. And do that. And go and do that, and you'll live." Mm-hmm. So it's it's very important to understand that this is a law passage. Yes. This is not a gospel passage. Yes. The man is, is a, asking the question, how do I get to the place I want to be, which has been promised to me. Absolutely. But he doesn't, He the man who can save him is, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, so we this are, is a I, law passage. Yeah, put a pin in it because yeah. we're going to come back at the end and make it super clear mm-hmm. exactly how this use of the law is meant to drive people to the Savior. That's right. And we'll get there. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next passage, also a parable of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's mm-hmm. found in the Synoptic Gospels, but we're going to look at Matthew's account of the rich young man mm-hmm. from Matthew 19, verses 16 to 26. So again, a relatively well-known text for many. Uh, and we've mentioned this parable at a number of points in the past right. on various episodes. I mean, in law and gospel stuff inevitably, but also in our episodes on Lordship Salvation, we dealt mm-hmm. with this text to some degree, but we have a number of new listeners, and this is just a really good parable to illustrate mm-hmm. some of the things that we're talking about today. Uh, do you want me to start, John, or you want to start? Yeah, so this is the rich young ruler, and um, just to kind of set it up, there are a couple of things that are helpful when you're interpreting passages of Scripture. Uh, again, when I said uh, the Bible assumes certain things, one of the things that the New Testament writers do, uh, James is a great example of this, and so is mm-hmm. John. But they assume you understand Old Testament law and culture, as you like you've and, read it, and the Old Testament covenants and how right. the Lord dealt with His people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they will say one very, very important hermeneutical principle: New Testament writers assume you know the Old Testament. It assumes 
that you've read it, you know it, and you at least understand the basic concepts found within it. You know the Old Testament law. I always find it interesting that for so many, for it's pretty common practice and a large portion of American evangelicalism, when someone gets saved and they want to start reading the Bible and studying the Bible, they'll say, start with one of the Gospels. Now, I understand you want to start with one of the Gospels because it's about Jesus. The only problem is it sets people up at a hermeneutical disadvantage. You're reading, anytime you read anything in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament is writing with an assumption that you know the Old Testament, that you can understand what they're saying in the New Testament based off your understanding of the Old Testament. If you've never read the Old Testament, then you're starting off at a hermeneutical disadvantage because you don't know. So here's always the question. If someone wants to talk about Bible study and, and they want to interpret a passage or start arguing about interpretation, and if it's any New Testament verse, if it's any New Testament verse, What you should do is like, you know what, before we argue, let me ask you a question. Have you read the entire Old Testament? All of it? No. Okay. Well, then there's no point in having this argument, no, this discussion, because this discussion, we are discussing a passage that the writer assumes you already know the Old Testament, and there's a high probability that our ability to interpret the New Testament correctly relies on our uh, understanding of the Old Testament. So, I'm just going to challenge you. One, if your church rarely preaches on the Old Testament, that's a problem. Two, if you've never read the Old Testament, that can be remedied immediately. You need to fix that. And three, you need to increase your amount of time of studying the Old Testament. Or let me say it this way. You should balance your study of the New Testament with a study of the Old Testament. I just think it's very, I think that's a very important hermeneutical principle. The New Testament just assumes you know the Old Testament. Do you? Do I? Very important concept. All right, let's continue. One word or phrase, you know, like John will say, and it was the time of the Passover. Like John's understanding, you understand what that means. So he's not going to go and explain to you what the Passover is. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing. Or the Feast of Unleavened Bread or whatever that included the, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the the phrase that trips people up is at the end. So we're going to start at the end because uh, the disciples say, well, wait a minute. Well, then who can be saved? Well, the first key word in this, Justin, is the rich, right? There's a rich mm-hmm. man who mm-hmm. comes and talks to Jesus. Now explain why that's such a key phrase from Matthew. Yeah. Huge. Because under the Mosaic covenant, this shows up over and over again in the Old Testament. It's all throughout the book of Moses, and then there are illustrations of it throughout the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. God promised under the Mosaic covenant, under the Mosaic law, that if his people obeyed, he would bless them. Mm -hmm. He would prosper them. And even he would prosper them materially. And this is where prosperity gospel preachers hijack Mosaic covenant paradigms and overlay them into the modern context, and it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But under the Mosaic covenant God had made with the nation of Israel, he promised to prosper his people for obedience. Very important, another very important distinction, and we've been talking a lot about this in Romans uh, 9, trying to explain the promises that have been made to Israel. So many times, not only will prosperity uh, preachers hijack it, preachers of all kind go to the Old Testament and look to promises made to Israel, and then we hijack those promises and then try to apply them to us or apply it to the church. I think this is very important about keeping Israel distinct from the church. I, I Look, I know the millennial people will disagree with me. I, I used to be in the millennial camp, but 
I, I think that I, look, people do this all the time. Like, look, he he promised that to Israel. Well, then that promise has to be for us too. Oh well, wait a minute. I mean, people do this. Hey, he he made a promise to those coming out of Babylonian captivity that he has he knows the plans he has for them to bless them. I I just drove past the church what a couple of days or what a week ago two weeks ago where they quoted from Jeremiah this passage and they had it on their church sign and I literally wanted to stop walking to the church and go I'd like to meet the people that the sign is for and they'd be like what who that sign out there it's a promise about God knows the plans He has for me to bless me like who that's for the people coming out of Babylonian captivity so I'm assuming you've got some people oh no you 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 don't have anybody coming out of Babylonian captivity in your church so who is that sign for. That's a promise given to those coming out of Babylonian captivity. It's not a promise for us. There are some promises in the Bible that are not applicable to us. It's just that it's, it's a, I, I know that when you say that people like lose their minds, I've told the story a million times. I worked with a woman. She could not get pregnant. It was really bothering her and her husband. They were becoming very discouraged, very depressed, very frustrated, causing stress in the marriage. And for her quiet time, her devotional time, she's in the book of Genesis. And she's like, I read this beautiful passage where God promised Abram and Sarai a baby. Boom. I claim that promise today for me. God's going to give me a baby. And you just want to look at the woman and you, I just, your name is, your husband's name's not Abram and your name's not Sarai. That promise has nothing to do with you. But Christians do this all the time. So they're drawing the correlation that this uh, this person and uh, Matthew, this parable, they're going to, the, the, the rich, the rich ruler, the rich young man, um, that this idea of rich is very important in the context because Israel was promised material blessings. All right, let's see what they do with this. He also promised covenant curses should they disobey. For example, right now I'm preaching Ruth and you begin that book, it's the time of the judges, and there's a famine in the land. Well, God had said at a number of places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that one of the things he would bring against his people for their disobedience to his law is famine, for example. Mm-hmm. So this is a paradigm that we've got to have in our minds, old covenant context, Mosaic covenant context. God has said, if you obey my law, you will be blessed, not just in a spiritual way, right? But you will be blessed materially. As my people on earth uniquely in this era of redemptive history. And so that is in the minds of the disciples. Remember, Jesus is ushering in a new era, but this is a bit, it's a unique period of redemptive history. When Christ shows up on the scene, he is in one sense, the end of the old Testament, Mm -hmm. his arrival. It's just kind of this pivot point. It's this hinge. And so the, the disciples are still thinking in Mosaic and Davidic and even Abrahamic covenant categories, Mm -hmm. Right. And so for them, if they hear Jesus say, which he's going to say, it is so difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They're going to be like, uh, excuse me, uh, he's rich, he's wealthy because he's been obedient. That's right. This man's coming to you and clearly he's an upright dude. mm -hmm. He even understands himself to have kept the law. And obviously he's wealthy because he's upright. And you're telling us that he can't enter the kingdom of God. Well, then who can? If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith. Versus okay, I didn't know they were going to break into a commercial there. 
And if you've struggled with legalism, okay, that caught me that caught me off guard. I'm like, wait, what just happened? I thought the uh, I thought there was an audio problem. So we'll come back in. They're making a very good point here that they that the disciples would have understood the whole concept of rich as basically well, that's proof that they're they're, they're obedient to God. So then, and so when you read these type of passages, not knowing that you're going to miss yeah. really the kind of the heart of it, which the disciples did. Real quick, because that that whole business of like the the rich people struggling in the kingdom of heaven, we, the only category we have for that is well, yeah, Jesus, you tell them because we're not supposed to love money. Right. That's what we think, and it's like, but the disciples don't respond at all like that because they're no. not saying, yeah, exactly right. That's they're right. saying, woe unto us, because if he can't be saved, how can we? And and, and anyway. that's the thing. It's so like we we miss the point of the passage, and we go Correct. to the money. Okay, I want to make sure you understand that. The reason the disciples would be like, wait a minute, if he can't be saved, why, how can we be saved? Because if he's rich, that should mean that he's been obedient and God is blessing him because they understand it in light of the promises made to Israel. So if someone in Israel is rich, clearly they have to be obedient to God and saved because God is blessing them. So if if an obedient person, in a sense, who, who is keeping the law and being blessed by God, if they can't be saved, then why can't we be saved? But we remove that historical context to the passage and we just want to go immediately to money or about being wealthy and the dangers of money and the danger. We we want to go almost in a completely different direction because once again, we tend to ignore the historical context of a passage of scripture because we in many cases don't read the New Testament in light of the old it's something we all fall short of doing, but it's something we need to be constantly reminded of. So Theocast, another great job in doing just that. All right, let's continue. Sections of the passage. It's like, no, no, no. The guy wasn't allowed into heaven because he loved money. Right. Well, let's go He back. was divided in his loyalties, etc. Yeah. Right, go ahead, John. You know, let's, he let's needed rip. to make Jesus Lord of his life or whatever. Correct. So in the beginning, it says that this man, this man comes up to Jesus saying, teacher, what good deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would have entered, sorry, if you would have entered, if you would have eternal life, keep the commandments. Yeah. All right. Sounds very similar. Okay. A couple of things. First, this is Matthew 19. I don't think they ever really gave the scripture passage. It's Matthew 19, starting in verse 16 and following. All right, now, very important thing to remember. Good master, what good things shall I do that I may eternal uh, have eternal life? He said, why callest thou me good? There is a none a good but one. That is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Now, very important. This immediately tells us this is a law category, law passage, do, do. You see that language, do something, do something. That's law. That's not a gospel passage, all right? And again, many times we'll take this and we'll turn this into a pass, an opportunity to preach about you better love God supremely. You, are, is your heart divided? And we'll turn it into basically law, right? We'll take the law from it and then say, okay, do this. And if you don't do this, it proves that you were never saved. We almost take a law passage and then just still use it as law to challenge people's claim of salvation instead of saying, no, this law law passage should show you that you're never going to do this perfectly, and that's why you need Christ, who did all of these things perfectly. But let's see how they handle it. ...to the way in which Luke has uh, told us about it, the illustration, right? Yeah. So he says, which ones? <laughs> and just really quickly, when Jesus says, why do you ask me about what's good? Right. He, of course, is implying, like, only God is good. 
But the implication there to the man is uh, you don't see no, hum- no human being is good. That's right. That's part of the implication. Well, he yeah. even says teacher, so he's not seeing Jesus right. as God. Of course not. And he's saying good teacher, and Jesus is like, look, no human being is good. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that you tries you must... to set him up in the beginning. He does. He and does. The guy doesn't get it. Right. So he says, which ones? And Jesus says, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false All witness. All from the moral law. On yep. your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, you know, gives us love God, love neighbor. The young man said, well, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? So what's interesting is that the man clearly feels a hole. He feels not uh, completed, right? Because yeah, he's mean, saying, sense, wait a minute, what am I lacking? Like, you're not granting me eternal life by your demeanor. Exactly. That's, like, I think I understand because he's going to say this. Well, I've done all that, mm-hmm. right? So like Jesus is clearly there's something else in your mind because if it's simply about keeping the commandments, I've kept them. Yeah. If it's about keeping the law, I've done it. So what else is there? He says, if you would be perfect, he, he yeah. finally gives the point of the law. Yeah. He goes, you want to be justified? Be perfect. Very important point. This guy's like, I've kept the law. And I mean, now Jesus doesn't get into an argument whether you kept it or not kept it. I guarantee you, if we go to the true understanding of the law, he hadn't kept it. But let's just say, even if he has, Jesus goes a step further. I'm like, okay, let's say you've kept that law to some level. If you will be perfect. And the requirement for salvation is perfection. The requirement for salvation is perfection. That perfection is given to us by faith when we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. So I cannot then look to my imperfection to judge whether I have received the perfect righteousness, which is what a lot of Christians turn salvation in. What must you do to be saved? Well, you receive the imputed righteousness, but you better do A, B, C, D, E. Well, what if... What if I, how, how well do I have to do these things? How perfectly do I have to do these things? Well, if you don't do them enough, we're going to call into question your salvation. How can you call into question my salvation when my salvation is based off an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness, unless you believe that we don't receive an imputed righteousness, we are infused with a righteousness, then we must cooperate with that righteousness enough to demonstrate that we are saved, which is, well, Roman Catholicism. That's sadly where many Protestants end up. Basically, they're Catholic. More, some, I think some Protestants are more Catholic than Catholics. All right, here we go. And then yep. he points out where he's not perfect. And he goes, well, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and your treasures will be in heaven. The point of it is, Jesus says, you're failing the law in your heart. Exactly. That's the problem. You're failing he's- the law in your heart. What he's doing right there, a lot of times, you know this, John, as soon as we hear that, sell what you possess, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. That there is turned into something like, um, from Jesus himself, friends, uh, surrender all mm. for Christ equals the good news. Yeah, that's Surrender all to Jesus and you'll be saved. That's right. That's the gospel, people say. And we've said this before, the only problem with that message surrender all for Christ and you'll be saved is that nobody's ever done it. No. Right. Except so, one. And that, and that, and that shows up in some ways within certain Lordship individuals will basically say like, how do you know you're saved? Well, have you surrendered all? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Like they'll give you that test, right? The 11 point test. Well, I think MacArthur had was, was his, his test 14 points. 
Jonathan Edward had a test, was 11 points, 12 points. There's always these people throughout church history, like, here's the test. This is how you know you're saved. This is how you know you're saved. This is how you know you're saved. And then you look at the test, and you're like, well, so do I have to do it perfectly? Well, no, you don't have to do it perfectly. So I can I can score imperfectly, and this test will then perfectly tell me if I'm saved. It's just... It just becomes subjective nonsense, and what it what it does is we sit, start dumbing down the law so that we can feel like that we've accomplished it. When in reality, the the test to show you that you're saved is your the imputed righteousness of Christ that you've received by faith, not my practical righteousness, but because my practical righteousness will never, ever, 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 ever show me that I'm saved because it will always be flawed, tainted, and corrupted, and never even anywhere be close to perfection. I don't look to that. I know some people will say, well, 1 John is the test. We, we, we did a series on 1 John where I believe 1 John is a... a a, it's basically a, an answer to Gnosticism. It's about Gnosticism more than about a test to somehow prove wh- whether one is saved. It's a, it's, a, it's a rebuttal to Gnosticism, and we talked to all about that. But So I agree. A lot of people will basically say, are, are you saved? Have you denied yourself? Have you died to self? Are you following Christ? Have you surrendered all to Christ? Well, if you haven't done this, you probably have never been saved. And it's just like at some point, you're just going to be like, I give up because I'm ne- I can never do all these things that people keep telling me to do. Well, people shouldn't be keep telling you to do anything because they should be pointing you to the fact that it has been done for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that means you can just now live any way you want. The fact that you've received an imputed righteousness and Christ did it all for you and it is done out of love, out of thankfulness, out of a a a reverence for what has been done for you, you then strive to live out in practice what has been done for you in your position, even though it's going to always be imperfect. All right, let's continue. So that's a damning, that's a damning statement. That's right. Not a a statement of comfort and good news and hope and peace. And so what Jesus is doing here is not giving this man gospel. He's doubling down on the law with verse 21. That's right. He's dumping the full weight of the law on this man's conscience. This dude has said, I've done this, Jesus. I've kept the commandments. In other words, when you say I've kept the law, you're saying I've loved God and neighbor perfectly. So Jesus effectively in verse 21 says, okay, prove it. Yeah. Prove that you've loved God and neighbor perfectly by selling everything you have, giving it to the poor and following me. The man can't do it. And he goes away dejected. That's the point. You can't do this. That's right. Well, and some people say that's the good news about it. As Jesus says, come follow me. That's the gospel. And I'm like, no, that's not the gospel. Not in this context. No, because to come follow Jesus is something that you have to do and you can't. That's the thing about it. Well, Um, it's it's kind of like forsake all this and follow me. Forsake mm -hmm. sin, come to Christ. And we've been clear on that in the past. If there's something we need to do in order to come to Christ, that's not good news. Well, and you have reasons to boast. Well, sure. But I mean, in the first place, you couldn't do it. That's right. In the second place, yeah, you, there's you have reason to boast, which the the gospel, or excuse me, the the epistles make very clear that we don't have any. Well, the funny thing was that someone pointed this out to me the other day. Well, yeah, the uh, well the the disciples left all and followed Jesus. That's <laughs> like until they didn't. <laughs> until they didn't. And I mean, the, and the way that it's stated with the calling of the disciples is so it's 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 so matter of fact. Jesus goes and says, "Hey, come do this," and they do. And it's like. It's it's very clear that the work, work right of God is involved in this, and they come <laughs> right. and do it, and and it and it is noteworthy that they do follow Christ. But because it's just so plainly stated, 
it's very obvious, even in the minds of the evangelists who record it. Mm. It's like, yeah, this is Jesus called them and they came and did it because this was all a part of the plan, obviously. Mm. Anyway. Yeah. Um, well, just to to summarize back down yeah. into it, you know, the disciples are like, wait a minute, Jesus. Yeah. Like, you know. What's uh, going on here? <laughs> if he can't be saved. And the they got the point. And that's where, yeah. you know, you can see that it's like they're, they're not catching that Jesus has to die. They're wanting to issue the kingdom now. I mean, the disciples themselves are wrestling through sure. bad theology of law gospel themselves. Yeah, and um, a false, false expectation or just improper expectations of even the Messiah and the Messiah's mm-hmm. ministry and all the rest. Yeah, I mean the men a theology walking, of glory. Yeah, of the men that are walking with the which you know gives me a lot of comfort to know that men that walked with Jesus struggled to uh, yeah. you know with these type of things. And so, uh, all right, so th- those are two. I, yeah. I, I'm like having this urge to get into the next so, section. So, yeah, so let's not really <laughs> maybe last comment from me on the on the rich young man, and then we'll move into the last passage is the point of it at the end, verses 25 and 6, again, the disciples wig out because they're like, um, if this upright dude who's been blessed because of his obedience, he's wealthy, God's blessed him. If he can't enter the kingdom of heaven, then Jesus, who can be saved? We've Mm -hmm. explained why they would even ask such a question. And then his answer is beautiful. He says, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Meaning, With man, salvation's impossible. Right, which is the point of the God illustration with the camel and the needle, exactly. eye of the needle. It's like, that, that exactly. can't happen. It can't, can't happen. be done. That's right. And so it's, in other words, the words the, the words of Christ here are, the man thinks he's going just, to be justified according to law keeping. Jesus proves to him, you can't keep the law for righteousness. And everybody's freaking out. And, well, how can anybody be saved? Christ says, God's going to do it. So there we go. Mm. Last passage, Romans chapter 2. Okay. Now, I I think we're going to try to finish this because I do want to finish this because I didn't want this to turn into like a a 12-part series when we started this. But let me just uh, remind you, when Jesus says, again, I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus is demonstrating that from a human perspective, from a human effort perspective, it is impossible to do this. That's why we need Christ and what he has done. But I've heard this preached so many times. Well, the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem. And what would happen is the camels would come to this gate and they would have to kneel down. You'd have to take all of the packs and all of the the bags off of it. And then the camel could get through. And so that when we come to Christ, we've got to take off all of the packs so that we can enter into heaven. So in other words, it's almost preached again, almost like a works-based salvation, or they will say this, that if you haven't taken off all the packs and all the bags and all the stuff, if you're not willing to to, to separate from all of that, then it proves you were never saved. It still becomes a works-based system. You just try to, it's plain semantics. Well, you don't have to do it first, but if you get saved, if you don't do this, if you don't strip yourself down from all of your material possessions and only love God supremely, if you don't do that, then you were never saved. The problem is, if you say that, then 99% of the people who claim to be saved are not saved. Well, 100% of the people who claim to be saved are not saved because we never truly do any of these things correct or right. It is impossible. We need Christ who did it for us. Now, yes, should we strive in this life to not love things above God? Yes, but we're always going to fall short.
That's why my hope for salvation is not to look to my actions. It's to look to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to go to Romans chapter 2, just so that you know. If you, again, have the Church One app and go to our Romans series, we spent months in Romans 2 looking at the concept that they're about to look at because it, well, it confuses a lot of people. Well, it, it should, well, actually, it should confuse more people than it does. A lot of preachers act like it's no big deal. And it's not complicated, but it is when you first consider it. Let's, let's see what they do here. We've only got a few minutes left. Let's see if we can finish this up. Verses 6 to 13, most pointedly, but inevitably, we're going to be referring to Romans 1 through 3 mm-hmm. uh, in order to really deal with this passage because it's all of a piece in one sense, right? It's a flow of argumentation mm-hmm. from the Apostle Paul, which brief interjection before we even get to the text, I think it's very... I want to be charitable here. I, I think it's it's sad and in some ways ironic that many people who champion good exegesis and champion context when doing exegesis seem to divorce these verses from the context in order to argue what they argue. Mm-hmm. In addition, I don't think they come to the passage with appropriate hermeneutical tools like a law gospel distinction either. But the context alone makes it very clear what Paul's doing. And then the law gospel piece just kind of makes it, if possible, even more obvious. But yeah. let's get into it, John. Well, I, and to add to your thought there, um, when we say, you know, everybody wants to take the text literal, right? We, we don't want to. Sure. Or take it seriously. Take it seriously, right. right. So, but this is a great example of what Justin and I are about to show is that everybody has a presupposition have a position that they think about, so mm-hmm. presupposing it upon the text. True. And so I've got a lot of good Stop right here. This is so important. All right. I say this over and over in my sermons. Some people get offended because I say it it, 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 it comes across violent or it's blunt or they, 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 some people it just offends them. I, but I say it and I, I'm using a, a very exaggerated speech to try to get the point across. And I don't want it. I don't say it just to offend people, but I say it in such a, a hyperbolic way that it gets people's attention. Whenever you open your Bible, whenever you we get ready to study the text of Scripture, there's something we have to do. Before, before we study the Bible, there's always something we have to do. We have a passage of Scripture, and the first thing we have to do is we have to find Fluffy. We have to, come here, Fluffy. Come here, Fluffy. Come here, Fluffy. And we have to call Fluffy. And we may love Fluffy. And Fluffy represents our presuppositions. It represents everything we've learned about a text of Scripture, all of our past studies of the Scripture, all of the past sermons that we've heard. It, that represents Fluffy. And we love Fluffy because it makes it easy, right? You've heard someone preach on Romans 2, 6 before. That's what they told you it meant. So guess what? Every time you read to, uh, Romans 2, 6, you just grab on to the things you've been told before. You've got Fluffy. And now you you Fluffy becomes the way you read Romans 2, 6 from that point forward in your life. Where, whatever the scripture is, you, just t- you constantly take the things you've been taught in the past. It may be your own personal study. It becomes your fluffy, and now you, when you get ready, you open that text again, you just read it the same way. You've, you come to the same conclusions over and over and over because you're relying on past presuppositions, past knowledge to interpret the text today. And I say this all the time. Your past interpretations 
are useless. Your past study is useless when you study the text today. Because if you were wrong in the past and you stu- and you rely on that today, you just bring your past error and make it a present day error. So here's what you have to do. You have to take everything you've learned about a passage. You have to take every past study, every past sermon. That's your fluffy. All of that past stuff is fluffy. And guess what happens? Before you re- take your sermon, you have to take Fluffy and you have to go out behind the house. And Fluffy's got to be put down. You got to kill Fluffy. Fluffy has to die. Sorry, Fluffy's got to go. You got to get rid of all of that past. You got to get rid of it. Fluffy has to be put down. And then you come back and study the text. Now, maybe after you study the text again, you come to the same conclusions that you learned in the past. Well, then you can go back and try to revive Fluffy and hopefully bring back Fluffy back to life. And you can hold Fluffy again until the next time you study the passage of scripture. Then Fluffy has to be put down. It has to wait the way it goes. I know I'm saying that in a graphic way. I'm not talking about actually killing an animal. As an animal lover, I would never say that. I'm saying it has to happen, okay? In a sense, not an actual animal, but what it represents. Fluffy here represents all of your past knowledge and your past understanding. That's why, as a pastor, if I've preached on a passage of Scripture in the past, I would never preach, I will never rely on the notes of the past to preach that Scripture today. Because whatever I study, I don't even want to keep my past past notes. I think you just eliminate your past notes. Just throw them away. Delete them. Don't use them because you're relying on your past understanding. What if your past understanding was incorrect? You are not infallible. You are fallible. We're getting ready to study Matthew 24 again, right? This week, we're ending our Bible study exercise in the Gospel of John. We're we're talking about a life of victory, and we're talking about about all of those, all the problems with trying to understand spiritual victory. But we're going to, next week, we're probably going to begin our study in Matthew 24. Guess what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to rely on any of my previous studies of Matthew 24. I'm not. I don't know where we're going to end up this time. It probably will be different than the time I've studied it in the past because I can't rely on past notes. So we always come to these texts with presuppositions. My thing is, yes, there's presuppositions and they have to die. Because if they don't die, I'm not studying. Listen, when you rely on past presuppositions, past learning, past study, past knowledge, when you hear the text today, then you're not studying the text today. You're simply remembering what you've studied in the past. That's not Bible study. And when preachers rely on past notes, that's, I believe that's spiritual malpractice. How dare you? You pull up your past notes. You're not, you're not infallible. You think you're the Pope or something? No, you're fallible. So don't rely on anything you studied in the past. You say, well, that's a lot of work to do again. Well, it, it, really, I, I didn't know that. I, I, I'm shocked. I didn't know it required work to put things together to study and to preach, but it does. All right, let's continue. Good brothers who, um, who are very faithful expositors, but um, they they think they're just taking the text literal and then giving the application. What they mm-hmm. don't see themselves doing is actually bringing a theology into the text, which sure. Justin and I agree we are too. We are. Oh, that's so important. So many times, <laughs> people will like they'll 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 throw out some conclusion and then they'll give me like four or five scriptures, right? And they'll, and they'll say, "See, see, see, this proves my point." And I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, no, 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 no." You, ha- you are giving me your theology, 
and you're just finding random verses that you think support your theology. You're reading your theology into the text. I, I, I try to explain this all the time at church. Um, I'll take a, like, okay, right here, here's a booklet. Let's pretend this booklet represents our theology of our church, okay? We, like we hold to the London Baptist Confession of Faith at our church. We, we also will reference the, uh, the Apostles' Nicene and Athanasian Creed. Okay, but here we go. Here's our theology, okay? Now, I got my Bible right here. Here's my Bible. And I always show my church this. This is what we have a tendency to do. Here's our theology, and I'm placing it over the text. Now, I read the text through the lens of my theology, which then just places my theology within the text that I'm reading, and then magically like, dun-da-dun-da-da, don't you see it? Uh, earlier today, someone posted a, a statement about, like, why we baptize babies, right? And then they start quoting these verses, and for them, see, these prove ba- uh, the infant baptism. And I, I, I shared it with uh, some other people, and uh, some other people were like, why would you quote that scripture doesn't prove infant baptism? I'm like, well, for them it does because they cannot see that passage apart from infant baptism because they've read it into it. We are all, we're all in danger of doing this. That's why you have to take your past presuppositions. You even have to take your present day theology. And I'm getting ready to throw this across the room. You toss your theology when you study the text of Scripture. When I study the text of Scripture, I don't worry about the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I don't worry about the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't worry about the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. I study the text and just try to figure out what the text says by the words that are used in the context there. Now, once I come to a conclusion, I may go, wait a minute, that goes against the London, that goes against the... Okay, how did I come to this conclusion? Why is it going against these theologies, right? Then I can compare it. But at the begin- when you study the text, you forget all of that. If not, if you bring your theology with you, you will shove it into the text. That's why charismatics read the Bible. They see charismatic theology. Uh, people who believe in infant baptism, they see it in the Bible because everybody brings their theology to the text. And you cannot do that. It's hard not to do it. But you got you got to try to set everything aside. Look, we're going to study the text. That's why we do the Bible study exercises, where I do everything I can to try to get you to look at the text, look at the text, look at the text, look at the text, look at the text. All right, let's continue. Bringing a of theology, course, we to the all text. do it. Right, and, but what we're trying to do is be consistent with the text. In other words, if my theology contradicts uh, the, the the text, I really just step back and say, where did I get, what did I get wrong? Either the text yeah. is wrong or my presupposition is wrong. And I'm going to go with the text not being wrong. Here. Correct. <laughs> Another brief thing before we really get into it, just bear with us on this guys, because these things matter. We've talked about something called biblicism before. Right. And that's where we, with the best of intentions are like, we want to say what the Bible says. We're Bible people. Agreed. It's like, okay, amen. I mean, we, we want to be all of that, but what people do sometimes is, with the best of intentions, trying to say what the Bible says, they actually introduce and create tension and mystery and even contradiction where the scriptures do not contain those things. And this is an example of that, because what's going to happen with Romans 2, 6 to 13. All right, now I got to jump in here. I'm, I'm not, I think we would probably have somewhat of a disagreement here. We would have to talk it out to know when this biblicism that we create mystery and we create contradiction where there isn't. I'm not a fan of saying that because this is, this is where you start approaching the text going, well, clearly there's no problem here. Clearly there's no mystery here. And I hate that. 
Look, sometimes you read a passage of scripture and you're like, what in the absolute name of bubblegum is going on here? This seems to contradict everything. This is confusing. This is mysterious. This makes no sense. That is, that's not you creating that drama. That is you realizing the text produces this kind of drama to anyone who's actually reading it. Acknowledging that is not a problem. Now, if you try to create it where it's not there, it's okay. But what I can't stand is preacher like, there is no problem here. There is no contradiction here. There is no mystery here. This is so simple. And it just comes across as arrogant garbage. Because because if it was so simple, then for 2,000 years of church history, there wouldn't be 927,000 different interpretations. That tells me the text isn't as clear as you want it to be. And this comes where now people trying to read their theology into it. Because perspicuity of scripture is this theological perspective that the scriptures are clear as far as it relates to things, maybe say to salvation. And I, and I'm like, I don't know how clear it always is. Because if it was clear after 2000 years, we wouldn't still be arguing and debating about it. You think everyone agrees on Romans 2, 6? Give me a break. There's so many different schools of thought. So it's not wrong to say, this is confusing. Nobody really understands this. That's not someone creating it, biblicism and create. That's someone just going, the text is clearly confusing and 2,000 years of church history demonstrates the reality of said confusion. It's arrogant to say, no, everyone's got it all confused, but let me show you how easy it really is. That's just garbage. What we say is, it's confusing. Here's the best we can do today. The next week we study the verse, we're going to throw out everything we just came, conclusion we just came to, because we don't want to read tomorrow what we studied today. We want to look at it anew. But I don't like this. A lot of pastors just don't, don't, don't confuse people. Don't, don't let them think it's confusing. Why? It's confusing. Look, any person sitting in the pew knows it's confusing if they've ever read five commentaries. They buy five commentaries on Romans and end up with 57 different opinions. Clearly, they know that not it's not simple. So why pretend from the pulpit, it's just really not that confusing. As soon as I hear a pastor say, it's really not that confusing and it's really not that difficult, I almost immediately just want to turn it off because it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, it's it's... 27,000 different interpretations offered in 2,000 years, but you're right. No problem at all. It's so simple because you're going to tell me what it means. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that uh, that drives me crazy. All right. So I think we may have somewhat of a disagreement here. That's okay uh, because, again, I like listening to things that challenge me. I just, I just don't think the passage is as clear as everyone always – a lot of passages are as clear as everyone wants to make it out to be. From a biblicism perspective, you're going to say, well, this is what it says. Is what it says. And, you know, it's confusing because it says this in other places, but it says this here. And now we're just trying to hang all this together when what we are going to contend for today is, first of all, look at the flow of Paul's argument. But secondly, one of the things that the scriptures wholesale reveal is law and gospel and use that, that tool, law and gospel that we've gotten from the Bible to go back to a passage like Romans 2 and understand it to where you're not creating mystery and tension where there actually isn't any. Mm-hmm. So. See, I, I just disagree. There, there really isn't any tension. There really isn't any mystery. Well, if there really isn't any tension and really isn't any mystery, then why has there been so many disagreements in 2,000 years? Well, then your argument's going to be because for 2,000 years, no one was as smart as I was. <laughs> hey, guys, I know there's like 50 different interpretations out there, but I want you to know 
It's really not that complicated. It's just the problem is you were reading people who are not me. You were listening to pastors who are not me. See, if you would just listen to me, you would realize it's not that complicated. Do you see the arrogance of that, that concept? It's really, it's, it's just, I don't know why people cre- say there's so much tension and, and difficulty here, because really there isn't. Well, okay, well, then why has there been so much disagreement? You've got it figured out, but everyone else is wrong. I got you. I think the best approach is like, hey, here's all these different perspectives. Let's try to work through each one. This is why I don't think this one works. Here's the best option I can give you right now. And that's what I try to, here's what I can think. This is the best I can come up with right now. And I'm not, and sometimes you can't just be, I can't be dogmatic. And it's hard to be dogmatic when there's been so much agreement in church history. So I, I, I don't like this because ultimately what they're saying, even though they're not trying to say it, is they're trying to say the reason everyone else disagreed with, uh, the reason everyone else struggled with this is because, well, they didn't understand it the way we do. And that's just, yeah, I don't like that concept. I know they're not trying to say it that way, but when you really break it down, they've got it figured out. It's everyone else who didn't because the passage itself is not really difficult. That, that, that's calling that's calling a lot of people in church history basically not as smart as them. And that I know they're not trying to say that, but when you really break it down, that's what it comes down to. Here we go, I guess, yeah, right? Go for it. Yep. Yeah. So Romans 2, 6 to 13 occurs in this context. Romans 1, 18 to 32, most people know all of the brilliant Gentiles are culpable before God and they're guilty. God has given us all over, you know, to do what we want to do in our sin. Then in the first few verses of Romans 2, Paul makes the argument that nobody, like if you judge other people according to your own standards, there's an irony in that because you can't even live up to your own standards. You know, you condemn yourself by judging other people. And then he's going to effectively say, like, you can't even meet your own standards, let alone God's, right? Mm -hmm. And don't you know, you know, that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance, right? Then he's going to get into this, beginning in Romans 2 and verse 6, and this is where it goes off the rails. Mm -hmm. Romans 2, 6, he, God, will render to each one according to his works. All right, first statement, this is true. God Mm -hmm. judges all men on principles of righteousness, right? Yeah. Do your works. Makes him a good judge. Yes. And that's the argument. A righteous judge. Yep. A a righteous, impartial judge is the Lord, is effectively what Paul's saying. Now, just so that we know, the series that we did on Romans 2, I mean, it's all part of the series of Romans, but we did a whole series of messages called something like justified by faith, judged according to works. And this is where everything goes off the rail. Well, wait a minute. If we're justified by faith, how can we be judged according to our works? Are we saying the only people who will be judged according to their works are lost people, but saved people will not? Are you saying that say people will be judged according to works, but it'll be a different judgment and that won't determine salvation, that will determine reward? We went through all the different possible perspectives. All right, let's see which perspective they offer here. Verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Okay. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And then he doubles down on it. There'll be tribulation. Okay, now immediately when you start reading, you see some of these options kind of go away. To them who by patience continue in well-doing, seeking glory and honor uh, and immortality, eternal life. So now this is not just clearly lost people being judged according to their works. This is someone being judged and it's determined by being judged according to their works that they get eternal life. So then clearly this is not just a judgment of 
unbelievers. And this is not just a judgment of believers who are going to get rewards. This is a judgment that determines whether someone is saved or not saved. And it's looking at good deeds. You see, and see, that's not someone creating some tension. You read that and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. This sounds like a salvation by works. Any any normal person should stop here and go, this is problematic. And you start looking at all the commentaries and you're going to realize clearly it's problematic because everyone has a, th- a theory. Everyone has a hypothesis. Everyone thinks they know. So I don't like their idea that, you know, it's really not that complicated. Okay, well, let, let's see. I, I'm still I'm interested to see what answer they come up with because we went through, I think, six possible answers. And we ended up with uh, one. And I, I think I think I may agree agree with their answer, but let's see where they go here. In distress for every human being who does evil, Jews and Greeks. Mm. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, Jews and Greeks, because God shows no partiality. Mm. That's the kind of judge he is. That's right. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, right? So this is the Gentiles, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, here's how this text is normally explained. And we're going to offer a different interpretation. People say, you know, it's mysterious because we're told very clearly in the Bible that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But then here we have this very clear statement from the apostle that our works will factor into our final salvation. Mm -hmm. It's mysterious. We don't know exactly how this all hangs together, you know, but man, it's what it's, we're Bible people, right? So we've got, we got to talk this way. I mean, seriously, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be uncharitable. I know, know. but that's what, I mean, I've read commentaries, John. I know. From reputable New Testament scholars who are otherwise pretty good. And then they come here and uh, like Robert Haldane said, you either leave Romans 2, 6 through 13, a Protestant or a Romanist. There's no middle Mm. ground. And I think he's exactly right. Yeah. So let's just talk about what this is, what's happening in the flow of the argument here. Instead of the interpretation that I just articulated that some offer, we would offer this one. In the flow of Paul's argument, we've already talked about it. Everybody's culpable before God. God is an impartial judge who rewards those who do good with eternal life. He punishes those who do evil with wrath and condemnation. It is not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Fast forward in his argument, though, to Romans 3, 9 and following. Mm -hmm. There's a huge problem, John. According to Paul, no one is good, period. That's right. No one does good. No one's righteous, not even one. No, not even one, right? Mm. So then this is what draws or leads Paul in his argument to conclude this. Verse 19 of Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, a.k.a. everybody, right? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Mm -hmm. First use of the law is to show us our sin and crush us. Like no one will be justified according to the law. But now he says, Romans 3, 21 and 22, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, there's the good news. That's right. That's where the pivot occurs, right? So his argument is God is an impartial judge who rewards the good and punishes the evil. The problem is no one's good. This is why no one's justified by the law, and the righteousness of God must be given to people through faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many passages that we can build upon this that help us 
conclude this. So we can see, Justin argued from the context, we can see that he is leading us to be crushed by the law. Yes. Uh, Paul is on par, you know, he, he would be the second greatest preacher of the law next to Jesus being the greatest preacher of the law because Jesus wielded the law powerfully to, to break people down to their knees so that they would beg and plead for, for grace and mercy, which is the point of the law, right? Is to point us to Christ. Uh, you know, you think about things, uh, I've been in James, so I'll just think about James right now. James does this cyclical idea where he starts mm. with the gospel and then he brings you to your requirement, showing you how you failed your requirement and then bringing you back to the gospel again. Well, if you, if you ignore the grace passages in James, you can come to these conclusions that James basically is saying that one is justified by obeying the law, right? Mm. Like you say, faith without faith without works is dead. And we emphasize that work side. And I would encourage you to go back to hear our episode that we did on James. Yeah, James too. But James yeah. says this, uh, he's, he's already three chapters in. He's starting in this fourth chapter. He has explained how they have just brutally, completely mm. ignored the gospel and the nature of the gospel. And then he says this to them, but, the, but he gives, I mean, literally he calls them adulterous, enemies of God. And then he says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, now James is now quoting the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. God opposes the proud, but gives Mm -hmm. grace to the humble. Yeah. So think about it in this way. The next verse he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. We don't understand the word humble. We think humble is some kind of like, you know, demeanor that we must fabricate within ourselves. Um, No. Literally, humble means one without means, one who has nothing. So when you come to God saying, I have no righteousness, I have no obedience, I have nothing to justify myself, the Bible says that God gives grace to that person, Amen. but he rejects the proud. The proud is a person that says, I actually accomplished something. I actually the, have the capacity to do this. The proud is the lawyer. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's the right. proud is the is the rich young man, and countless other people Jesus encounters in his earthly ministry who are trusting in themselves that they either are righteous or can achieve it. That's right. Yeah. So there's so many passages that help us look to these ideas. You know, how, uh, continue how you've begun. Like, well, yeah. what does that mean? We've begun by grace, and we're going to continue by grace. Okay, they really haven't explained Romans two six. They really have it too much. So we're judged according to our works. Like they, they, I, I, they've kind of, I, 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 I'm detecting the answer, but they're not really explicitly stating it. So they've got like l- less than five minutes. Let's see if they do so. If not, I'll come back in and try to, I'm going to give you my interpretation in a clear, precise way, because I think it's the only one that makes any sense. All right. At least today. Now, tomorrow I may completely change my mind, but let, let's, let's. Go. Here we go. And we're going to reach at the end by grace. You know, he is the author of our faith by grace and the finisher of our faith by grace. So that's where humility comes in is that every time we see the law, we should be able to look at it. And and when I say Jesus, the greatest preacher of the law, let me give you an illustration, Justin, I'll let you jump on this. When Jesus says, well, you've heard it say, do not Mm. commit adultery, but you Mm. have lust in your heart, you've broken the law. He takes it and says, you've lowered the law thinking, well, I haven't slept around. And she's just like, you did in your mind, therefore you're guilty. And that's what should cause humility in all of us. Yeah. You're referencing the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five in particular. 
the Sermon on the Mount, you'd say Jesus is the greatest preacher of the law ever. I can't help but think this. You know, God gave the law to Moses on a mountainside. Mm-hmm. And then God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, on the side of a mountain preaches the law. Amen. The greatest amen. sermon on the law ever preached. The Lord himself in human flesh is going to speak it. That's right. On a side, on a mountain. I mean, it's hmm. incredible. You can't make that up, right? I mean, right. that's just a, an incredible parallel from Sinai to the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Lord is now in human flesh going to exposit the law as it's intended to be understood and used and applied. Mm-hmm. And he does what you just said. He starts in verse 17 of Matthew 5. It's important to realize I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Right. Huge. And then he's saying you ought never remove anything from this law. Whoever does that will be least in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. But whoever upholds these things and teaches others to do the same will be great in the kingdom of God. That's huge. And then he says that they need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Then he gets into this whole business of, you've heard it said. Mm. And he talks about anger and, and lust. So he said, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. But I'm telling you, if you've got anger in your heart toward your brother, you've broken the law. Yeah. Right. And you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you've lusted after somebody, you've broken the law. Right. And that's how he starts right. after saying, I came to fulfill it. <laughs> well, going you know? back to, to Luke and to Matthew, yeah. both of these men were trying to exalt themselves to be righteous. Yeah. So going back to James, James says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Mm-hmm. They were literally saying, God, they're saying, good teacher, Jesus, mm-hmm. what must I do to continue my exaltation into heaven? And it's amazing. James, the brother of Jesus says, it's when you come to the point you realize you have nothing. It's yes. at that moment God exalts you, Amen. not your obedience. So, sorry. No, you're good. I'm done. Go. So, <laughs> all right, well, let's answer the question like in the last minute or so that we've got here, and then we're going to move over to, to the SR podcast, which we'll right. tell people about in a moment. Yep. What must I do to be saved? In answer, nothing. Nothing. You, you don't do anything. You receive what Christ has done for you. Mm. And you, and you receive that by what? Faith. That's right. Trust, acceptance. Right? I mean, that's the language of our confession. Mm-hmm. Receiving, accepting, hoping in Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. I mean, that's, that's right. it. So One is born into new life. One does not born yes, themselves. That's right. And, so, <laughs> and even that faith, right, is what? It's the gift of God, mm, you know, and, and it's a fruit in one sense, right, of regeneration. It's a fruit of the new birth. And so this is something that the Lord does. I mean, salvation is of the Lord. It belongs to him. Mm. We receive what God has done for us in Christ. We don't achieve. Any- so they're not, they're, I, 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 look, I've done the same thing in a podcast. I, like I start off to do one thing and by the time I'm done, I didn't really do what I said I was going to do. I, it, they did so good with the Luke and Matthew passage. They came back and said, okay, let's summarize the teaching here. In, in Romans, they didn't really do so. So let me help you. Who, speaking of God, God will render to every man according to his deeds. God will judge people according to their works. Now, if you are without Christ, it's your works which will condemn you. If you are in Christ, it will be the works that have been imputed to you 
by Christ, passive and active obedience being imputed to you by faith. So then those works that are judged is, guess what? You have loved God. You have loved your neighbor. You have been holy. You have done everything the law commands you to do. You have not done anything the law has prohibited you from doing because you are in Christ. Your works will be judged, and they're your works because that you have received that righteousness by faith, and they're imputed to you. That's the only thing that makes any sense. That's the only way to make the passage make any sense. It's the only thing. It's the only thing consistent. Because if you say, well, no, 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 there will be a judgment according to works, but for the believer, it's not the judgment talked about here. But clearly in Romans 2, when it goes on to describe it, it talks about being judged for good, and it gives you eternal life, not reward. So clearly you can't separate, say that this is a judgment of works only for unbelievers and not for believers, because this is a judgment of works for believers that determines eternal life. So when you stay, because over and over and over, the New Testament talks about being judged according to works. Oh, it, time and time again, the New Testament talks about that. We're going to be judged according to our works. We're going to be judged according to our works. And that is 1000% true. You will be. They're going to be your actual works, or they're going to be the works that have been imputed to you by faith. I will stand before God and be judged according to my works, but it will be the works that I have received that have been imputed to me by faith, the active and passive obedience of Christ. And guess what? When God sees those works, he will say, well done, that good and faithful servant, because who is the good and faithful servant? It is Jesus Christ, and his obedience has been imputed to my account. That's how we understand Romans 2, 6, because if we don't understand it that way, well, you're going to have some serious theological inconsistencies, or you could just be a Roman Catholic. <laughs> okay, so, but if you're going to be in the Protestant world, you're going to have some theological inconsistencies. So the big takeaway from this is understanding the distinction of law and gospel, and now we've looked at three passages, and we'll talk more about law and gospel at a later time, but I wanted to bring this kind of like... It kind of ended up as a mini-series to a conclusion because we've got other things that we need to work on in our uh, uh, later uh, live broadcast. We may do some uh, live broadcast later this evening. I don't know if we'll get to it anymore today, uh, but if we don't, we'll try to do some tomorrow. And uh, there's a lot of other things that we need to get to because we're always running behind. But there you have it. Hopefully that was beneficial. You can, if you have any questions about any of that or the distinction, the long gospel distinction, email me at newsif at yahoo.com. And we'll definitely make some uh, time to do some teaching on it. I think we're going to try to do some teaching on it maybe at church so that people really understand this distinction. But uh, we'll, we'll work on that. All right. But if you have any questions, let me know. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. I'm going to stop right there because we're already over an hour. So I know this is kind of like an abrupt ending, but it's an abrupt ending because we ran out of time. All right. And that's Theocast. We didn't completely finish everything they have to say there at the end. You can go listen to it. Theocast, subscribe to their podcast, and uh, and uh, if you hear anything good, let me know what you, what, what you hear. And uh, yeah, we, we like you. We like to point you to good podcasts. We like to point you to podcasts that we think will be beneficial and interesting, whether we agree or disagree with them. We think that will generate good uh, spiritual conversations and get you to really think about things. So we're always trying to point you to podcasts. Theocast, I think, is will definitely be worth your time. All right, there you go. Everyone have a great day. God bless.